Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Longtime listeners, you know the drill. This episode is part of a much longer series. To be sure you get the whole story, we recommend that you jump back and start from episode one. Also, we want to invite any of our thousands of listeners who still use Facebook to join our friendly show group, which currently only has a couple of hundred fun-loving members. Just search for the show's name. As is our new custom, we will briefly celebrate one of our Patreon patrons, a select group that we will bend the rules to let all of you join just this once. We're mentioning one of these lovelies and accusing them of involvement with a conspiracy of my own devising. To wit, Anxious Hermit is aware that sex and gender are different, but believes in the conspiracy theory that they can both be pretty fun. If you'd like your name or your pseudonym to join the role of honor at the top of a future show, just sign up at patreon.com forward slash the paranoid strain at the $5 tier. We thank you kindly, both for listening and for supporting. Finally, whether you do social media or not, please do drop us a line. Tell us what you think of the show. We're open to suggestions, criticisms, and recipes. Send them all to theparanoidstrain, that's all one word, at gmail.com. Okay, let's get going. Paranoid Strain Orchestra, hit it. We found a fascinating discussion of this topic in a book by Michael Barkun, emeritus professor at Syracuse University, whose work specialized in the nexus of religion and violence. Back in 03, he published an overview of the role of conspiracies in American life with a special focus on the preceding decade. That book, Culture of Conspiracy, offers a look back at the way that NWO fears interlinked with millenarian anxiety and found their personification in these sinister but largely apocryphal flying machines. In case you're too young to know this, conspiracists were absolutely obsessed in the 1990s with the idea that unmarked military helicopters, painted jet black, were frequently seen hovering in the sky near sites where believers suspected evildoers were plotting. For example, sites for NWO enthusiasts believed that FEMA were building secret prison camps designed to round up rebellious patriots when they made their big move or near the underground bunkers where the elites would live during the power-consolidating war they were about to perpetrate in secret. Or around places like Area 51, where it was alleged that they were testing out new technologies for control and intimidation. Essentially, these whirlybirds were the boogeymen of the NWO believer, a semi-credible spooky story to imagine and share with other believers to help them visualize and tremble at the vastness of the forces arrayed against them. Barkun begins by reiterating the thesis that, as the Cold War enmity between the U.S. and USSR crumbled and the latter fell apart, and I'm quoting here, the New World Order allowed its devotees to rebuild their Manichaean worldview in a new venue. 
Did you recite that just to make your listeners feel like you didn't waste your time earlier in the series when you digressed extensively on the subject of Manichaeanism? That wasn't the only reason, no. It's also a neat quote. He goes on to elaborate, New World Order theorists put flesh on the old trope's bones throughout the decade, getting more specific about who exactly was involved in what was previously a sort of amorphous globalist threat. You'll be shocked to know that apparently the Council of Foreign Relations and Trilateral Commission, those old John Birch targets, are the ones who get the blame. They also identified specific plans and preparations this cabal was engaged in, and it's here that the black helicopters become important, serving as a tangible demonstration of the power and secrecy of the conspiracy itself. Now, to give credit to the black helicopter and sisters, it's not like they're claiming something that's outside the realm of reason. I mean, helicopters exist, militaries exist, and they have lots of helicopters. Some helicopters are painted black. And to be more generous, the government and military have sometimes, some might argue, frequently, okay, frequently, done some heinous shit to innocent people based on a vague notion of national security. And we're sure they'll keep doing so into the future. So it's not exactly flat-earth-level delusion to think that some secret branch of the government is tasked with preparing for eventualities, like widespread civil unrest, and that they conduct many of the exercises and strategies related to this eventuality out of the public eye. And we know this because it's fucking obvious. I mean, we all remember when Trump threatened to invoke the Insurrection Act against protesters a few years ago, right? Well, the Insurrection Act is a real thing. And FEMA, the National Guard, and other agencies, both civilian and military, obviously have plans in place to respond to scenarios where civil unrest becomes a major issue. I mean, famously, the Pentagon plans for wars with any other nation on Earth, including Canada. He's not kidding. Back in the 1930s, military brass was concerned enough about the possibility of the UK and Canada joining forces to invade, however unlikely that scenario was, that they drew up a formal plan of attack. So watch out, hosers. So the branches of government we know about have plans for all eventualities that they recognize. It's a sure bet that there are some secret groups that have secret plans for even weirder shit that might happen, embedded within those branches. So on the face of it, fear of law enforcement and maybe even military actions against, for example, armed militia groups back in the 1990s was not crazy in and of itself. But while the idea of a new world order was more than a half century old in the 90s, the idea of concentration camps plans to re-educate the recalcitrant through mind control, and black helicopters as the sinister enforcers of the plot were of more recent vintage. Specifically, these ideas all traced back to the paranoia, however justified, of the left-wing radicals who found themselves in the government's crosshairs back in the 70s. This was the era of the Church Commission, covered in our historical political conspiracy series, when Americans suddenly learned that a secret part of the Internal Security Act of 1950 authorized the military to detain citizens in the event of an emergency, and that pursuant to that plan, local and federal law enforcement, working with the Army, had long since begun developing plans and exercises to deal with this potential future scenario. During the Church Commission era, the government's concern was laser-focused on the various armed, radical, left-wing movements like the Black Panthers and the Weathermen. And the goddamned hippies. But as time went on, these orders giving the federal government broad peacekeeping and civil disturbance-quelling powers eventually began scaring the shit out of the growing number of right-wing radicals in the late 80s and early 90s. And of course, the more conspiracy-minded argued that if plans existed, then clearly the evil NWO socialist anti-American bureaucrats 
were conspiring to bring about precisely the scenario that would invoke those powers, thus allowing the plans to be enacted, leading inevitably to the enslavement of the free people of the United States and the crushing of all patriotic dissent. In other words, the plans were not drawn up in order to deal with imagined potential future emergencies. Instead, the conspirators figured out exactly what they would need in order to leverage a pre-planned attack into a wholesale rounding up of dissident militia types, autocratic takeover of a free country, end of the world, big brother, 1984, yada yada. But once the conspiracists came to that conclusion, the obvious next assumption was that if they're going to kick off the plan soon, obviously the concentration camps and re-education center construction must be well underway, and the fleets of black helicopters had to be fueled up, trained mercenary UN crews at the ready, to swoop down on rural America, bagging and zip-tying whoever they didn't immediately slaughter. Right, so skipping a few steps. The existence of the plans themselves was evidence that the conspiracy was ready to strike. As Barkoon notes, in the wake of Oklahoma City in 1995, a cultural moment where suddenly everybody in the U.S. became briefly as obsessed with the thinking of right-wing militia loons as a young Jesuit already was, the idea of black helicopters was suddenly everywhere. We played you some audio from militia leaders, including Norm Olson, head of the Michigan militia, which was the one that got the most ink at the time, back when they were in front of Congress in the 90s. That was way back in episode four, if you're interested. But more recently, we stumbled upon a fantastic clip from Michael Moore's all-but-forgotten TV series, TV Nation, which, for my money, is the best work the guy ever did. In one episode, the lumbering documentarian visited militia leader Olson at the latter's house, where the two baked a cake together and tried to hash out their political differences. As you can hear, the type of New World Order conspiracies that we're discussing were front and center in Olson's thinking, including conspiracies about the OKC bombing itself. Why do you think Oklahoma City happened? I think perhaps that there there is a conspiracy afoot. Do you think the government was involved in blowing up the Oh, yes. Oh, yes. you do? Yes. It was supposed to have gone off at 6 a.m. Before the, before the building, building was occupied. Then it would have been a very powerful political statement. Here's my question. Tim McVeigh. As soon as he was arrested, he said, I have had a chip implanted in my buttocks when I was in the service. He claimed that he was mind-controlled. The stuff out of James Bond is real. Norm sure had a lot of theories. Foreign troops are training on U.S. soil. Uh, true. Vince Foster was murdered. True. The CIA controls the nightly news as well as popular sitcoms such as The Nanny and Friends. Only Peter Jennings and the staff of, a of ABC and Time Warner. Barcoon notes that much of the helicopter mythology dates back to the shortwave radio broadcasts of one Mark from Michigan. Among this 90s-era sage's pronouncements was that fleets of midnight black whirlybirds constantly patrolled the U.S.-Canada border serving as support for the huge number of U.N. troops who were, even then, already stationed in the U.S., ready to swoop down, arrest the patriots en masse, and declare martial law and enforced globalization of the U.S. government and economy. He was another one who insisted that the Russians were just pretending to be a total mess at the end of the 90s, using their supposed disarray to lure U.S. and other policymakers into a trap. To quote Mark himself, by the year 2000, America will be merged into a socialist new world order, and the world will be split into three functional divisions, European, North American, and the Pacific Rim power structure. Sounds like somebody reread 1984 one too many times, doesn't it? We've always been at war with Eurasia. And before we leave this subject, remember, most of the time when you see helicopters, they're some distance away. And a lot of them are painted in dark colors, green, gray, other black adjacent shades. 
So people who were convinced that unmarked black helicopters were a growing threat to the American way of life could, if they paid attention, see distant choppers that kind of fit the bill, maybe, several times a week. Since helicopters are involved in everything from rural firefighting, to medical transport, to cargo hauling, to inspecting power lines. In other words, if you're looking with your naked eyes for helicopters that might be black and might be unmarked, you'll see plenty. And if you think they're harbingers of doom, the fact that nobody around you is freaking out might just freak you out even more. Next up, we have the strange case of a leaked 1960s-era document that seems to prove that the government is planning massive changes to our way of life. Just the kind of thing the New World Order, and eventually QAnon, would tell you the deep state had in store for all of us. It's called The Report from Iron Mountain. Iron Mountain. Sounds like a men's rights retreat. It does indeed, Unicorn. But Iron Mountain is a real place. And it's the kind of place that really gets the blood pumping if you're a certain kind of records and archives nerd. It was established back in 1951 in Boyers, Pennsylvania, when Herman Naust, the mushroom king of the Hudson Valley, gave up on trying to turn a defunct New York State iron mine into a mycology farm, deciding instead to get into the underground document protection business. He purchased a former limestone mine in western PA and offered a brand new kind of service to the public storing cans of information in a climate-controlled document paradise for $250 a year. Since then, Iron Mountain has turned into a publicly traded data management company with an emphasis on cloud storage centers throughout the world. But they still maintain underground facilities, like the one in Boyers, where everything from images owned by Bill Gates to Pentagon plans for a post-nuclear scenario to Abraham Lincoln memorabilia has been stored for decades. We should acknowledge that the info for that capsule biography of the place came to us from the nicely maintained Butler County, PA Historical Society website. We also found this story from a local news station that was given a tour of the normally highly secure facility. Behind these doors sit amazing cultural treasures. Hundreds of thousands of movies. We do business with the majority of the motion picture film studios uh, in California. So they store the original movies with you. Correct. Ann Hartman took us into the refrigerator that houses the Corbis image collection owned by Bill Gates. 27 million mixed prints, negatives, glass plates and slides. Royalty from all around the world is in, is in these print files here. This is the international news photo collection originally belonged to William Randolph Hearst. Here we have um, rock bands and rock groups. It's almost impossible to wrap your mind around the size of this place. I mean, this vault alone is 25,000 square feet. There are 15 of them just like this. 100,000, 200, the largest is 222,000 square feet. One vault. One vault, the size of, uh, of a shopping center. Anytime a client needs a document, a microfilm or a microfish, the Iron Mountain staff retrieves it. But the reason we bring all this up is the secure facility at Iron Mountain is also the primary location where a secret group of prominent civilians were brought together by the government in 63 and tasked with planning for an unprecedented, previously unthinkable, scenario. Oh, the threat of total annihilation in the face of nuclear war? No, they knew about that one. That's a cinch. Dig some caves, store up dry rations, create underground agriculture, ratio of ten women to every man. Do the proper breeding techniques and... Uh... 
ratio of, say, 10 females to each male, I would guess that they could then work their way back to the present gross national product within, say, 20 years. No problem. This other problem was a really tough nut to crack. What to do if, for the first time, humanity ever achieved lasting peace on Earth? You're saying peace on Earth is a problem? An unprecedented problem, Dana. Luckily, we had the best minds working on it, the kind of dudes they had studying the Lost Ark. We have top men working on it right now. Who? Top men. The result of their labors was supposed to remain secret, but ended up published in 1967 by one of the anonymous participants, causing a furor as horrified U.S. citizens realized their government was so afraid of ending war, they had undertaken a study to deal with the nightmare that is a peaceful world. Wow, really? I've never heard of any of this. That's because most of that stuff I just said about the reaction was a lie. When it was first published, the foreword by satirist Leonard Lewin insisted that he was publishing the notes of an anonymous John Doe who was part of the Iron Mountain group and who believed their findings should be known to the public. But even then, it was pretty clear the whole thing was an arch joke. When he returned the call, a man answered immediately and told Doe, among other things, that he had been selected to serve on a commission of the highest importance. Its objective was to determine, accurately and realistically, the nature of the problems that would confront the United States if and when a condition of permanent peace should arrive, and to draft a program for dealing with this contingency. But for those who were too square to get it, Lewin spilled the beans in 1972, admitting he had written the thing as a satire of the bloodless Cold War bureaucratic mindset, equipped to handle perpetual war, but stymied dealing with anything that would actually improve the cause of humanity. And by the way, an attentive reader wouldn't have needed Lewin's confession. While the report is a masterclass in aping the style of government memoranda to deliver a Swiftian satire of the military-industrial complex mindset, there are plenty of hints along the way that the whole affair isn't exactly on the up-and-up. Yeah, man. It's a sophisticated, heavy satire of the war machine pigs, you dig? It's a compliment to brilliant satirical classics of the era like Dr. Strangelove, and is clearly inspired by the same scenario the bizarre situation that mid-century Americans found themselves in, where they were assured that the best way to ensure peace and stability was to keep building bigger nuclear weapons and invading third-world countries. Because otherwise, the communists would win. You don't want the communists to win, do you, you fucking pinko? Exactly. Now, what do you think the conspiracy theorists did with this clever satire? Um, insist that it wasn't satire at all, but a real document, and the powers that be were deliberately covering up the leak of a super-secret plan that exposed their nefarious schemes? You're the winner, Dana. The prize is, I don't know, personal satisfaction. In reference to our current topic, believers have insisted for decades, and in fact, to this day, that this is our best-ever peek into the thinking and plans of the New World Order. In other words, the right-wingers adopted the left-wing satire of the war economy as gospel once the national security state's Eye of Sauron had moved off the lefties and fixed on their militias as the key domestic political threat. And of course, they can't be swayed from this conviction, no matter how obvious the satire. Hilarious. And when I say the satire is obvious, this quote is from the foreword to the report itself. I should state, for the record, that I do not share the attitudes toward war and peace and life and death and survival of the species that is manifested in the report. Few readers will. In human terms, it is an outrageous document. But it does represent a serious and challenging effort to define an enormous problem. And it explains, or certainly appears to explain, aspects of American policy 
otherwise incomprehensible by the ordinary standards of common sense. This admonishment, that the conclusions drawn by the Iron Mountain Group are the only possible way to explain various aspects of U.S. policy in the light of common sense, sounds suspiciously like Jonathan Swift. In case you forgot your high school English lit survey, Swift, surveying the wretched state of the paupers in his native Ireland, innocently suggested that his idea of selling Irish toddlers as meat to feed the wealthy British was a sensible man trying to solve an intractable problem caused by the stupidity and greed of those around him. Knowing that greed, irresponsibility, and the venality of his fellow man is not likely to change. His essay's title, A Modest Proposal, even matches the banality of The Iron Mountain Report. In other words, this is not just satire. This is really good satire. Which means, of course, that its wit will often go unnoticed by the more motivated reasoners who encounter it, and that therefore, inevitably, like Swift's brilliant broadsides, it will often be taken at face value. So, what's in this little Cold War gem? First, Lewin's anonymous narrator details the appalling problems that will ensue when the arms industry is no longer needed due to the looming threat of world peace. Those problems being? Come on, think about it. What are we going to do with all of the carefully tuned scientific, technical, and other expertise that is uniquely trained and focused on figuring out better, flashier, more effective ways of blowing up our enemies? And then multiply that problem by the weapons and defense industries of all the other nations of the world. You're going to have a lot of highly skilled people with very dangerous talents who are both unemployed and restless, which, of course, poses a big problem. Probably, in fact, a more realistic problem for a post-9-11 age than Lewin could even dream up for his Cold War-era satire. Also, and this is prime Vietnam-era stuff, what are we going to do with all the excess population whose numbers had so recently been kept under control thanks to the draft taking a big swath of the U.S.'s less connected, less wealthy male population with an average age of 19? Wait, the average draft age was 19? In Vietnam? Yes, it was. Seriously, the average age? Correct. Because nobody under 18 could be drafted, right? And yet the average age was 19, meaning that nearly everyone that your government was sending into that meat grinder was under the age of 21, probably. That stat was so widely known back in the 80s, there was a hit single on that exact topic. In World War II, the average age of the combat soldier was 26. In Vietnam, he was 19. In, 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 in Vietnam, he was 19. In, 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 in Vietnam, he was 19. That was very 80s. I didn't say it was a good song, just that it was a pretty big global hit, Ms. Lester Bangs. I'm forced to acknowledge that Paul Hardcastle, the composer, may have gotten his number wrong, according to other sources. Point being, though, there's no question that the draft had the effect of channeling a bunch of youth, often those without many connections or family wealth, into a vicious human thresher that would reduce their raw numbers, and also arguably keep them from causing trouble at home for the years they were overseas. Anyway, that's the point that Lewin is anonymously making with this bit of the report, where he notes that many listeners will be a bit squeamish at the conclusion that there is in fact an optimum number of war deaths per year when calculating the equations for a healthy, dynamic society. Few readers will not be taken aback, at least, by a few lines in the report's conclusions, repeated in its formal recommendations, that suggest that the long-range plannings and budgeting of the optimal members of lives to be destroyed annually in overt warfare is high on the group's list of priorities for governmental action. I cite these few examples primarily to warn the general reader what he can expect. The statesmen and strategists for these eyes the report was intended 
obviously need no such protective admonition. That was from the foreword, but what's even more fun is hearing how the bloodless bureaucratese of the main body of the text renders essentially the same idea. As long as any society must contemplate even a remote possibility of war, it must maintain a maximum supportable population, even when so doing critically aggreviates an economic liability. This is paradoxical in view of war's role in reducing excess population, but it is readily understood. War controls the general population level, but the ecological interest of any single society lies in maintaining its hegemony vis-a-vis other societies. Nations desperately in need of increasing unfavorable production consumption ratios are nevertheless unwilling to gamble their possible military requirements of 20 years, hence for this purpose. Unilateral population control, as practiced in ancient Japan and in other isolated societies, is out of the question in today's world. Please note that there's no audiobook version he could find, so he used a YouTube rendition apparently recorded by a conspiracy sympathizer. In other words, about all the mispronunciations, we know. The report offers other suggestions for confronting this terrifying peaceful future. For example, reintroduce slavery, pointing out that this would require relatively few changes to the existing military code of discipline. So just adopt universal conscription and you're halfway there. Lewin also points out that the end of war has implications for our scientific, engineering, and even aesthetic innovations in the future, since so many of these in the past have been in some way tied to some war effort or another. We need look no further than the Cold War space race or the Defense Department's support for innovations like the Internet to see validation of this point. Now we get to the part that really freaks out the Patriot set. Again, this thing is obviously, even admittedly, a piece of satire. But of course, that only reinforces in the mind of the anti-New World Order patriot that this is a real document that was accidentally leaked by the conspiracy, and therefore its conclusions are exactly those that the conspirators are using to create their nefarious plans. So, sections like this one are unquestionable evidence that the New World Order and its socialist unification of the globe under a single satanic government is nearing completion. We have already pointed out that the end of the war means the end of national sovereignty, and thus the end of nationhood as we know it today. But this does not necessarily mean the end of nations in the administrative sense, and internal political power will remain essential to a stable society. The emerging nations of the peace epoch must continue to draw political authority from some source. A number of proposals have been made governing the relationship between nations after total disarmament. All are basically judicial in nature. They contemplate institutions more or less like a world court, or United Nations, but vested with real authority. It might be argued that a well-armed international police force operating under the authority of such a supernatural court could well serve the function of an external enemy. This, however, would constitute military operation. Like the inspection scheme mentioned, and uh, like them, would be con- inconsistent with the premise of an end-to-the-war system. They think that a wall of bureaucrat ease is a threat? Absolutely. If you parse it out, it suggests the end of war will require governments to unify their authority into an international court or police system. In other words, a new world order. And even worse, it goes on to state, It is possible that a variant of the unarmed forces idea might be developed in such a way that its constructive or i.e. social welfare activities could be combined with an economic threat of sufficient size and credibility to warrant political organization. An effective political substitute for war would require alternate enemies, some of which might seem equally far-fetched in the context of the current war system. It may be, for instance, that gross pollution of the environment can eventually replace the possibility of mass destruction by nuclear weapons as the principal apparent threat to the survival of the species. Poisoning of the air and of the principal source of food and water supply is already well advanced, and at first glance would seem promising in this respect. It constitutes a threat that can be dealt with only through social organization and political power. But from present indications, it will be a generation to generation, a half before environmental pollution, however severe, 
will be sufficiently menacing on a global scale to offer a possible basis for solution. It is true that the rate of pollution could be increased selectively for this purpose. In fact, the mere modifying of existing programs for the deterrence of pollution could speed up the process enough to make the threat credible much sooner. But the pollution problem has been so widely publicized in recent years that it seems highly improbable that a program of deliberate environmental poisoning could be implemented in a politically acceptable manner. Oh, I get it. The eco-fascists are going to use environmental catastrophe, in other words, the fake global warming scare, to implement an external threat to replace war and the authority of the U.S. government. Indeed. Red meat, if you'll pardon the expression, for the freaks who had already determined, against all available evidence, that the whole global warming and general pollution threat have been engineered by domineering commies. The report concludes by arguing that, whatever we decide on as a solution, it must be as wasteful of money, resources, and human capital as possible. After all, it would be a pretty shitty replacement for the grotesque waste that is war otherwise. He then lists all the quote-unquote wasteful things we could do with that money. Universal health insurance, medical advancements, universal education, cars and housing for all. Of course, until we get rid of war, these sorts of wasteful spending programs will always appear far too expensive. But in the absence of war, the report concludes, the powers that be may have to bite the bullet and opt for just these sorts of waste to keep the masses pacified and the economy humming along. But what, a putative Cold War policymaker might ask, would we do after we solve these social problems with wasteful spending? Thankfully, the report points out, there's always space, which has the benefit of being an infinite hole in which to jettison people, things, and money. This thing is hilarious, albeit very, very dry. So, let's hear the totally chill read that New World Order theorists have on this not particularly influential, yet charming in its way pamphlet, written 50 plus years ago. Welcome to the report from Iron Mountain. This report is something you would never believe unless you read it. But you also have to understand the mindset of the government that requested it. And that is one of the most important features of this video. The objective was to determine accurately and realistically the nature of the problems that would confront the United States if and when a condition of permanent peace should arrive. This is one of the key elements of the report because we are to go under, under the Antichrist system, an era of supposed peace. And this is what this whole program was about, if and when a condition of permanent peace should arise. That means that peace, in reality, equals world socialism, as we will find out as we journey through this report. And they were to draft a program for dealing with this contingency. In other words, this is a planned situation. In 1961, Public Law 87-297 was passed, paving the way for the United States to be merged with the United Nations. It's a very crucial law in that it disarms the American citizen in violation of the clear intent of the Constitution, which calls for our right to bear arms to maintain our free state. And by the calling for the disarming of all Americans, of course, we lose our free state and we are submerged, actually, into a slave state. Uh, the disarming was to be done by a period of gradual disarmament, and as they were disarming, the United Nations would be built up with a powerful standing army. The evidence suggests a CFRTC Bilderberg connection, the rich men of the earth, the merchants of Babylon, the killers of the just, according to the Holy Scriptures. The report concerns itself with the globalist agenda, and the conclusions reached have been advanced by these groups. Every one of the conclusions in, uh, in the Iron Mountain report 
have been advanced by these groups, Committee of 300, the CFR, TC, Bilderbergers, Royal Institute for International Affairs, Tavistock, your Club of Rome, United Nations, it goes on and on. It's nice to hear them play the hits. Antichrist system, New World Order, Bilderberg Group, United Nations. For me, it's like a warm blanket. You've been warped beyond repair. Probably. on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.